Welcome to Living Wisely, Living Well, timeless wisdom to enrich every day with Asha Nayaswamy, one of the spiritual directors of Ananda Palo Alto and a founding member of Ananda Worldwide. If you enjoy this content and are inspired by the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda and his disciple Swami Kriyananda, find Asha on YouTube, Facebook, all podcast directories, and her website, ashajoy.org. Living Wisely, Living Well, May 3rd. True happiness is not the fruit of years of painful struggle and anxiety. It is a long succession, rather, of little decisions, simply to be happy in the moment. As my guru said, the minutes are more important than the years. This happens to be a, a thought that I have actually been um, committed to, is the way I would put it, really, for many, many decades. It, it began when I was first introduced to the very idea of the law of karma. Karma is cause and effect, as it relates, and if we're speaking of our own karma, as it relates to my own life, it's how cause and effect plays itself out in, in human experience, in the life of each individual. I actually came across that in a book by Swami Vivekananda. Vivekananda was one of the most famous disciples of an avatar named Ramakrishna. They lived in the 1800s in India. Vivekananda, as the disciple, lived into uh, the 1900s. He came to America. He was the first, one of the first, was actually probably the second, a notable Indian master to come to America. There was a, a Swami Ramatirtha, and I'm not quite sure whether Vivekananda or Ramatirtha came first, and then Paramahansa Yogananda, my, my spiritual lineage, came in 1920, a hundred years ago. Vivekananda came first, Ramatirtha came first. Um, in, in the lectures that, that Vivekananda gave in America, they were transcribed and put into a book, and when I was, just before I turned 19, I became involved with a group of friends, and we were all very serious truth seekers, and it was our, our karma to be introduced to self-realization as a way of life. And somebody handed me the book by Vivekananda, and I was a, a serious truth seeker who was really at my wit's end, because I simply could not find anybody who seemed to know anything. That would be the only way I could put it. I know that sounds arrogant and rude, but that was really what I was finding. There was a tremendous amount of knowledge around me, and there was some degree of wisdom. There was not foolishness. I was fortunate to be in, in good company. I had attended Stanford University, but at that point, at that point I had actually flunked out, although I did get myself reinstated, but I never went back. But I had never felt in anyone the kind of understanding of life that I intuitively knew was possible, but I simply could not get my hands on it, which is the obvious problem in life seemed to be the question of happiness, as Swamiji is writing right here. I found out later that Yogananda put it into what he called the science of religion. And he spoke about the two um, forces that define human life are the desire to avoid suffering and the desire to experience happiness. And it seemed to me that that was the only question worth answering. 
And in all my schooling, which had been high school and then one very disappointing year of college, nobody ever talked to it. They talked all around it, but they never spoke to it. And I gradually came to understand because they didn't have an answer. And either the question wasn't important, or if it was important, it had been suppressed in disappointment because there was no answer, or they just gave me the sort of the, uh, what you would call the, the workarounds that they had developed, which is, well, you can have a family, well, you can have a job, well, you can be financially secure, well, you can get your own home, well, you can, I don't know what, because none of it made any sense to me. And then I was handed this book by Vivekananda. He said three things. I'll give you the first two first. The first was, don't think about yourself and you'll be happy. Completely incomprehensible to me. But I gradually learned that it meant serve others. Think how you can be helpful to others instead of always thinking about what other people are going to do for you. I was generous by nature, but I was totally self-concerned. So the idea of, of forgetting myself in the uh, in the effort to help others was a new idea to me, which I gradually have embraced. It wasn't it wasn't that hard to embrace because I was naturally inclined to be generous and helpful, but to have it codified like that was very helpful. The second was, perfect love casts out fear. I heard that from Vivekananda, and only later realized that it was actually St. Paul in the New Testament who, who was the first person to put it just like that. By that point in my life, just before I was 19, I had figured out that fear was an absolutely useless emotion. Um, it just, except for the idea that, you know, your life was in danger and you had to run, but I was thinking more about emotional, emotional fear, projected fear, not actual physical threat. And that the fear that I was constantly, it was my constant companion, um, not, uh, you know, to a psychiatric level, but the sort of undercurrent of, of worry and concern was just draining my energy in all directions, and I, could, I couldn't think how to solve it. But the idea that perfect love, which is how St. Paul put it, perfect love casts out all fear, that love was an antidote and that I could begin to quest after that, that was really a revelation. And then the last, which is what is relating here, um, everything that you are today is the result of what you did yesterday, and everything that you will be tomorrow is the result of what you're doing today. And of the three, that was the real life-changing revelation, because it was the essence of self-realization. It was Yogananda's message to the world. It was Sanatana Dharma, India's message to the world, which is we are not helpless victims. There is cause and effect in human life. It's the law of karma. Of course, it requires reincarnation for it to really make sense. But even on the tiniest scale, there is a cause and effect relationship between the thought, my thoughts, my actions, and my feelings in this moment for what my thoughts and my actions and feelings will be in the next moment. And this is only much later did I read <clears throat> Yogananda's words, Master's words, take care of the minutes, and he says the years will take care of themselves. He also, he also said, take care of the minutes, and the incarnations will take care of themselves. Now, Swamiji says, happiness isn't the result of years of arduous and painful struggle. By what that means, 
is that as Swami put it, he said, the the improvement of our life and the gradual shifting of our life from unhappiness into happiness is not, as Swami put it, a long, bleak march across the desert that suddenly ends at the oasis. It's like everything is terrible and then suddenly everything is good. He said, it's a gradual making the desert bloom, which is what one plants seeds and then those seeds begin to sprout. And then what looked like barren land suddenly becomes green and fertile and eventually filled with flowers. Now don't try to make that work in geography. It's more like our mental landscape. If we're living in a desert, a mental landscape that is a desert of loneliness or unhappiness or uncertainty or fear or insecurity or self-concern, any of those things, how do we change them? We don't just sit in them and then suddenly they're going to shift. We have to plant seeds and we have to water those seeds and we have to weed those seeds and we have to cultivate those seeds and we have to protect those seeds. And it is a, 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 a revolution that takes place moment by moment, thought by thought. A friend of mine, um, who is a very good person with a lot of integrity in a lot of areas, yet had a a self-defeating self-image. And that self-image was one of inadequacy. And it was really ironic because they were far from inadequate. They were immensely talented in countless ways. But there was this constant inclination to talk to talk herself down I don't mean down from a high I just mean to put herself down with her own talk and she was a woman who liked to camp and was used to being outside in nature and had a rather hardy aspect physical hardiness among many virtues that she had where she had a lot of physical stamina and I said to her you know sometimes you camp in the desert where there are poisonous snakes where there's rattlesnakes I've lived in several places where rattlesnakes have been, if not common, at least not unknown. When I lived in Ananda village, we occasionally saw rattlesnakes, and you really did not mess around with a a rattlesnake. A rattlesnake was a serious danger to life and well-being. You didn't just sort of sit around and relate to it. You didn't talk to it and ask it about its children and sort of what it was doing yesterday. When you saw a rattlesnake, it was an emergency and you had to think immediately how you were going to cope, whether you were going to go near it, whether you were going to try to eliminate it, because the policy was to try to eliminate those snakes, unless if they were if they were around the civilized area, because we had children. I mean, it would be, it's one thing to have a snake around where you have functioning adults, but where you have children who are running free over the whole property, <clears throat> it's irresponsible to have poisonous snakes there. So we would always try to eliminate them if we could. Yes, you could argue ahimsa against that, but it was a collective decision we made. So in talking to my friend, I was saying, if you were, if you were camping and a, a, a rattlesnake made its way into your tent and you woke up and it startled you and it bit you, I said, you know, when you are bitten by a poisonous snake, there is a life or death emergency right there. And if you're far from civilization, you have to figure out how to get to a place where there's anti-venom. If you're, if you're isolated, you have to think about how am I going to cope with this and keep the venom from spreading and, you know, all the different methods. If you have, if you're prepared, 
you know, to bleed or to do a tourniquet or whatever the number of things are that you can do, you implement those strategies immediately. You don't reflect and think about it. I said, every time these negative thoughts come into your mind and start trying to persuade you that despite everybody else's opinion, despite your many accomplishments in this world, still you are justified in putting yourself down and feeling terrible and unhappy. You're not allowed to feel any satisfaction from anything you've done. You must tell yourself that you're terrible and you must revert into being miserable. I said, it is a life or death emergency. Not not only because of the unpleasantness you're unleashing upon yourself, but you are perpetuating a cause and effect that will keep you miserable for the rest of your life and for many incarnations to come because you've been doing this for a long time, it's clear. This is a life or death emergency, just like having the fangs of a rattlesnake sunk into your wrist. I said, so when these thoughts come, you must implement immediately an absolute dynamic anti-venom strategy, whether it is a song that you sing, an affirmation that you say, prayers that you start, breathing exercises that you do, exercise that causes you to have to start breathing in an even, uh, you know, running yourself so that you have this strong, even breath that makes that kind of thinking impossible. I said, I don't care if it's the middle of the night. I don't care where you are. Life or death emergency. And fortunately, to a certain extent, she heard me. And that's, that's exactly what we're talking about. Our lives are determined moment by moment. And part of the way the dark force gets to us, as Swami put it, darkness persuades you that you have to relate to it where what you really have to say is, get out! Just like that. When the rattlesnake is there, you don't feel like you have to make friends with it. You feel you have to deal with the poison it has deposited in your body, and that is your only responsibility. So, Swami says, true happiness is not the fruit of years of painful struggle and anxiety. It is a long succession, rather, of little decisions simply to be happy in the moment. As my guru said, the minutes are more important than the years. God bless you, my friends. Our work is made possible by inspired listeners. So if you feel to support Asha, you can make a one-time donation or for unique members-only content, subscribe through Patreon. Blessings and thank you.